0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Canada has one of the lowest inflation rates in the G7. Does the Bank of Canada really need to push rates higher? And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML... Let's swing back to to what's happening nationally. Uh, there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks, especially about the possibility of uh, the prime minister pulling the plug on this parliament and having a snap election uh, because of, well, economic news thing, suggesting that possibly there could be an economic downturn, even a recession in the fall, and that's never good for a sitting government. Uh, and the numbers uh, from the latest polling from Ipsos, in a, an exclusive poll that was done for Global News, uh, suggesting now that uh, it looks like uh, that statistical tie that the, the liberals and conservatives have been in for quite some time uh, has been broken. Global's Matt Cardi has the details.
1: According to the survey, Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party would receive 37% of the decided vote if an election were held tomorrow. That's up four points since February. Meanwhile, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party would garner 32%, down one point since February. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs.
0: We now have them leading the Liberals by five points. We haven't really seen that in years, basically back to before the 2019 election.
1: Bricker says it'll be interesting to see if this lead endures over a longer period. But this is the
0: type of uh, type of lead that leads to changes in government.
1: The NDP would take 16% of the vote, down two points, and roughly one in 10 Canadians say they are undecided about who they'd vote for. Matt Cardy, Global News.
0: So is this an indicator of uh, things to come, or do we go back to the by-elections from a little while ago? to get a better picture uh to try to make some sense out of all this we're so pleased to welcome back to the program dr laurie turnbull uh, dr turnbull of course is the director of the school of public administration with the university uh happy uh, to have you back with us laurie hope you had a good canada day weekend
2: i did i really did how about you
0: oh excellent excellent great weather everything seems to be going smoothly here uh and apparently for the conservatives too according to this ipsos poll anyway are you surprised by these numbers
2: Um, not really. I mean, and of course, we've talked about this sort of thing before, like a poll is a poll. It's not an election. It's not a vote. But um, it seems like um, there is a palpable sense of fatigue with the government. It seems like, uh, you know, it's possible that we're headed, whenever we do this election, we're headed toward a kind of a change election. There's some change momentum in the air. So then there's a question of where does that vote land? And it looks like, um, the Conservatives are starting to break away as a choice for people who are not interested in a return of the status quo. And, f- I mean, in some ways, that's interesting because Pierre Polyev's own popularity doesn't seem to have taken off. And, it, I mean, I think it was last week you and I were talking about Chantal lebert's article about how yeah. Polyev is actually a liability for the party. And so, but you know, a couple of things can be true at once. It's possible that they'd be seeing higher numbers if he was more popular. You know, you can... You know, apply what if, what if in all kinds of different directions. But ultimately, it looks like at this point, anyway, if there is a momentum against the Liberals, there is perhaps more of a coalescing around the Conservatives than there is around the NDP.
0: But juxtapose that with the the, the by election results from a couple of weeks ago too, because a lot of people thought, well, that's going to be a, a mini blue wave, and we're going to get an indicator of what's going on. Uh, the Conservatives uh, they they held on to those two seats, but. Uh, it was an uphill battle for them too. I mean, how do you, how do you read that in, into what the numbers from Ipsos say?
2: So I like I might be an outlier on this, but I didn't really take the by elections to be an indication of any particular trend. Right? Like it seemed to me, um, in a, in by elections, you're going to have low turnout. You're going to have like the NDP looking at those four seats and saying we're not getting any of those. And so are we going to like mobilize? You know, heavily. Toward trying to make an effort there, when we know it's not going to go our way, uh, the Conservatives won the two seats they thought they'd win. The Liberals won the two seats they thought they'd win. The Conservatives, frankly, you know, committed some unforced errors in terms of making the complicated, making the nomination process complicated in Oxford. They didn't have to do that, but they, you know, they they got the job done when it came to Maxine Bernier. He got nowhere, and so I don't think I, I didn't see any of that as particularly good or bad news for anybody. It just was a whole bunch of what we expected.
0: And and when we do the breakdown, and, and this is one of the key things, I guess, every time we start talking about a possible election. Uh, I mean, the, the the areas of strength are, are the traditional areas of strength. The, the conservatives are pretty strong in the Prairie Provinces, uh, mm. the liberals strong in the Maritimes. Uh, it looks like Battleground Ontario this time around when we d- finally do go to the polls, whenever that's going to be.
2: Absolutely. And so that's where it's going to get really tricky. Like I can see um, the Ipsos numbers have the liberals and the conservatives tied there at 38%. So then, of course, it you know, what happens in terms of the actual vote breakdown, because the numbers overall, even in terms of just a singular province, um, what the percentages of the vote is, are, that's different than what the percentages of the seats are and how those are going to break down. And so you might see some writings in ontario where the vote is genuinely split three ways between the the liberals and the ndp and the conservatives and that's i think for a lot of reasons we can see the kind of um, the demographic supports for different parties shifting over time we can see for example more younger voters coming to the conservatives older voters going to the liberals that's a bit unusual you know usually we see the other way around and not in not in the the too distant history either and so as we can see these populations sort of move around And we can see the parties appealing differently we can see for example in ontario doug ford appealing to um, uh, workers and so there's possible competition with the ndp there like it's it's these things are kind of shifting around and it seems like uh, voters might be more open to looking for other options in terms of how they typically vote and so it's hard to predict what people will do but it's going to be interesting to see how the parties play their space in ontario because even though the liberals and the NDP have combined forces to a certain extent in the house, they haven't combined votes, right? Like this, you know, it's not like unite the right on the, on the right side, where the the different parties actually came together and voted for and said, we're going to create one big bucket and all of the right of center votes are going to come here. Like the liberals and the conservative or the liberals and the NDP, sorry, are still dividing their votes. And so even though they're combining their support in the house, you know, to get things done, that's a very different thing.
0: Having said all that, <laughs> uh, the chances of actually having an election, I, I understand, uh, you know, some of the, the rationale here is, that okay, we may be heading for an economic downturn, although even that's debatable now, for, according to, you know, pick 10 economists, they're going to give you 10 different opinions on what's going to happen. Uh, but the yeah. suggestion is, well, you don't want to be in government when there's a, 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 going to be a recession, maybe people losing their jobs. But on the other hand, do you ride it out? Uh, You know, Winston Churchill's classic line, when you're going through hell, the best advice is just keep going uh, because we are going to come out of this the other side. I I don't know uh, because the the sense I get here is that Justin Trudeau certainly doesn't want to call an election. Uh, Jagmeet Singh certainly doesn't want an election right now. So, I mean, what what would be the rationale for it if, in fact, it would happen? And that's a big if.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't see that happening anytime before the budget of 2024, if they can, if, it seems to me, if they can bring down a budget that is not, uh, you know, all about trying to fortify ourselves against a recession, if they can put something in the window that looks hopeful and not, um, you know, if people don't feel as gripped by the cost of living crisis that we're in right now. Uh, I don't think Trudeau wants to go to election now. I mean, like in my home province of Nova Scotia, the carbon tax is on now. I mean, and and we, we've we gone back and forth on the carbon tax, but still those sorts of things. Um are going to make, I think, people, you know, possibly cranky at the ballot box. I don't think the liberals want to go. The NDP definitely don't. And so, I mean, if they're if these partners are looking at one another saying things are not going to get any better for us, why would they do it? It would have to be, you know, the conservatives really forcing it. And I I think it would be a gamble even for them at this point. You don't know what's going to happen.
0: Well, especially because, you know, those economists that are still predicting an economic downturn, shall we say, maybe not a full recession uh, mm-hmm. sometime in this fall, are also predicting that by the spring of 2024, uh, things are going to be looking up. I mean, we seem to have tamed the inflation bug. I mean, apparently the numbers are down again uh, this week, uh, down to not to the 2% that the Bank of Canada wants, but we're getting pretty close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, I guess the advice would be: well, just ride this out then, because uh, you know better days ahead come April, May, June of next year.
2: Oh, that's it. I mean, I can't imagine the Liberals going before that. I don't think um, any of the things that we've seen, like for example, that things got really heated in June in the House of Commons before they broke for the summer, and the part the relationships between the the Conservatives and the go- the government, like that was that was really difficult and if they it seems like if things were going to simmer over to the point that they were willing to really go at the government and try to force an election and get the NDP on side and do all that stuff if that was going to happen it would have happened I think and they all seem to manage to figure it out and pass the legislation and go home it's amazing how they magically do that you know every year even though they're (laughs) at each other's throats and everything and so it seems to me um you know, the, it will probably go till at least the budget of 24. And at that point, like they're almost to that 2025 mark. And so it's not like Trudeau's coming and asking for an early election again. Like it's, I think that there's still, um, a lot of political danger for him to do that. And I mean, again, if, if the liberals and the NDP have something stable right now and there's things that they want to get done, um, I don't, I don't see why they would trigger that any earlier than they have to. Particularly, as you say, like, if they can get to a point where people feel more secure fiscally, and they feel like there's something positive on the horizon, and there's some, um, you know, there, there, there's sort of something to be hopeful about, I think that the liberals have a high interest in letting that happen. And again, the the interesting thing is going to be, you know, what does the progressive voter do? If you are tired of the liberals, but you're afraid of Pierre Polyev, do you, you know, kind of hold your nose and vote for the liberals or... Do you say no? Like I like the way this this kind of not coalition but sort of partnership worked out, and I'm going to vote for the NDP because I think they're the conscious conscience of it. So we'll see. We'll see what people do.
0: And again, like you say, this is really kind of like playing on a dartboard, isn't it? I mean, I, I read Warren Kinsella's piece in the Sun the other day too, where he's suggesting maybe the NDP are losing support to the Liberals though, because they're ticked off with this whole partnership and saying, okay, as you say, it's the devil they know. So yeah. it's it's really kind of up in the air. And again, as we've always talked about. Uh, it's really where the votes are. You know, it's it's one thing. I mean, you know, what is it? The last three elections, now, the Conservatives have actually had more votes in federal elections than the Liberals do, but they're sitting on the other side of the House still.
2: Yeah, like in 2019 and 2021, the Conservatives won the popular vote but did not win the seat count. And it's going to be interesting. Like, I think this is part of Kinsella's uh, conversation too, and, and I read that article. Um, what are the Conservatives going to do With this partnership between the Liberals and the NDP, what if the Conservatives win a plurality, but not a majority of seats? Who's going to work with them? And will people tolerate uh, a House that is, you know, more conservative seats than any other party? But what if the Liberals don't resign? What if the Liberals and the NDP say, okay, look, we've got this partnership between the two of us. We've still got... We still got a a majority, even though um, the conservatives are the party with the most seats. Will people tolerate that approach to government? I'm not. I don't know, right? Like, I think um, the conservatives would really blow that up, and so it's. I'm not sure if Polyev is at the point yet, where he would get the kind of return on that, you know, that that surge that we can see in that poll. I'm not sure if that would come back to him in terms of a strong enough seat count to let him an opportunity to form government. I don't know.
0: Well, and that almost happened. It was in 2006, I guess it was, just after Stefan Dion took over the Liberal Party leadership, uh, where he and Jack Layton and Gilles Doucette, uh decided, you know, they were going to be the three amigos and go to the governor general and say, we can form a government. He can't. And uh, I know Stephen Harper kind of freaked out and said it was unconstitutional. It wasn't. They could have done that. Right. It's within the rules and uh, and you're right that could be in play here too there's there's a, a lot of intrigue here uh it's still to come and and again which is why i think nobody really wants to pull the plug on this thing just yet
2: yeah and another thing that we don't that is i think a significant factor in this is the strength of the bloc quebecois which yeah. in the rest of the country of course we don't you know that's not on our ballot but in quebec um the bloc's numbers are solid and that is a significant factor because it makes the continuation of a minority government much more likely If you've got that kind of vote split in Quebec, which is obviously a very vote rich and seat rich province. And so it means, you know, we have to normalize possibly a continuation of minority government, which could mean, you know, seeing more of this partnership style where the government isn't necessarily the party with the most seats, which is a significant departure from what we've always done, but Mm -hmm. is not um, is not at all unconstitutional. It's completely legitimate. We're just not used to it.
0: Yeah, speculation continues, and uh, we'll continue to talk about it, I guess. Laurie, always a pleasure. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. You too. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast
0: on 900 CHML. The good news is uh, we know the problems we've been facing economically for the last little while, inflation and higher interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But we seem now to be trending in the right direction. At least it looks like that as of now, but who knows what's going to happen. Uh, the good news though, about taming inflation, though, I think is, is really a, one of the key elements here and with the big takeaway from the report that we got last month. No Jude Almales has uh, some details for
1: us. The federal agency says the slowdown was largely due to lower gasoline prices compared with a year ago. Meanwhile, grocery prices were still skyrocketing last month, rising 9% from last May. The slowdown in the headline rate comes after inflation ticked up slightly in April to 4.4%, setting off some alarm bells at the Bank of Canada. Forecasters were widely anticipating a sharp decline in inflation this year as price increases slow compared to the rapid run up in the first half of 2022. The Bank of Canada will be paying close attention to today's report as it gears up for its next interest rate decision on July 12th. Nijudan Mali, Sycney Press, Ottawa.
0: Oh, and therein, thank you, Nojus, for that report. Uh, the concern here is what is the Bank of Canada going to do? The indication we got from uh, the big cheese patty, the Bank of Canada, uh, Tiff Macklin, just a few days ago, was uh, they're thinking and leaning right now towards continuing uh, increases in the uh, interest rates. Uh, wait a minute, that's that's not the kind of news we what really wanted to hear because of the impact it's going to have. Uh, Not just on inflation, but on you, me, the the people that are trying to deal with these economic woes that we're all facing right now. So what is going to happen and what should happen? Uh, Next guest has got some insights into that. Armin Yalnizian is an economist and advocates and fellow for the uh, future of workers uh, and joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Armin, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again.
3: Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: Why are they even talking about raising interest rates? I mean, we're beating the inflation bug. I mean, it's got, it's under 4% now. It's it's not at the 2%. I get that. But we seem to be trending in the right direction. Is, is, is this taking a sledgehammer to kill a flea?
3: Excellent question. And I think the problem is what they are seeing is that the core inflation rate is plateauing. It's just not going down any further. Uh, it's been kind of, while the headline rate has been falling, when you take out the two things they take out is gas prices uh fuel prices and uh and housing prices in particular mortgage interest costs because they obviously they are very tightly linked the what they're mm-hmm. doing with the interest rate and the mortgage interest costs And frankly, there has been a bit of surprise there that we haven't seen more of a bite. Uh, Yes, there are a lot of people out there that are going to get hit uh, by the mortgage interest cost increases, but it's a smaller share of the population than it was prior to the pandemic. You know, that could have something to do with the aging of the population, could have something to do with the fact that more people can't afford to buy. But in any case, it's a smaller share of the population that is going to be dinged by this interest rate sensitivity. So yeah, it's going up. And yeah, it, it's spilling over into rental markets too, because the people that do have have themselves leveraged and a lot of different homes that are renting them out for a source of rental income, like a monthly source of income, they are not in a position to be able to continue without raising their rents or maybe switching over to short-term rentals like Airbnb or VRBO. So I think we are looking at a bank that is saying, yeah, we're moving in the right direction, but it looks like it's not moving down fast enough. And therein lies the fight that has emerged on the front pages of every single business press outlet right now is, is this the right thing to do? And the consensus, at least in this last week has been, no, it's not stop doing this.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. I
3: don't know where they're going to go, but there's a bunch of them that are about to announce what they're going to do in the next few days. In fact, uh, we're looking at the U S on July, the 20th, twi- like after us, we go on July the 12th, that's next week uh, after us is, uh, the U.S., the European Central Bank, and the United Kingdom, and they're all expected to hike.
0: So what you do so well, and I've read a lot of the stuff that you've published in the last little while, is you you also talk about the human cost of these decisions. I mean, you know, you can get overwhelmed with stats here, but the reality here, as you mentioned, if interest rates are going to continue to go up and somebody has to renew their mortgage, you know, a five-year term if it's coming due this in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, is really going to get dinged. It's, it's not going to be like the days of the 19% mortgage. I get that. But it's going to have a significant impact on household uh, finances. Uh, and, and that's going to have an impact for a year, two years, however long the mortgages uh, that you're renewing for. What's that going to do to the economy? And what's that going to do to the psyche of individuals right now that are just barely getting by and some of them not even that?
3: Well, I think it, it's basically, sh- in my view, and you have to understand, I'm not a central banker. I'm not looking at the same data that these people are. But from my view of how this is working, um, it is happenstance that rising interest rates have coincided with lower uh, inflation rates. As you as you had in that clip that you pointed out, the biggest driver of falling inflation has been gas prices. And why did that fall? That fell because... Um, globally the world is turning away from oil and gas. Now, OPEC, the uh, oil producing cartel in the Middle East has decided to cut its production by a million barrels a day. And we should expect to see prices to rise, but we're also all learning how to use less gas. Uh, So the the demand and supply story is really what's driving the big part of uh, inflation and how, what it means when central banks keep cranking up rates is it makes it more expensive to borrow money. Now who borrows money? People that are trying to do something big in life, either going to school or buying a house, or businesses that are either trying to keep their business afloat or trying to expand. And on that second uh, shoe, uh, fewer people are buying uh, properties, More people are trying to pay off their mortgage as fast as they can, the ones that have the money. And that leaves everybody else. And everybody else is um, hostage to whatever businesses decide they're going to do to uh, try and control for higher interest rate costs. One thing could be that they lay people off. The other thing could be that they cut people's hours of work. Both those things mean that you and I, the workers that get affected, have less money to spend. The third thing they can do is raise their prices, which means we have to pay more for the things that they are selling, which means we have less to spend on everything else. In every instance that I have just described, the economy will slow down. And that is precisely the formula that central banks want. They want you spending less. But of course, if the you they're talking about is fairly well to do, you're hardly touched by these things. If you own your own house, not that much. If you have savings, not that much. If you are able to go shopping for good deals for food? Not that much because there's still great sale prices out there. The people that get affected the most are the people with no savings or very little savings with low wages and inability to save. And the people that are losing their jobs or hours of work, that is going to slow down the economy. Now, the last part I'll add to this is what the central bank keeps saying is they need to raise rates to slow down demand to let supply catch up. Well, if you just slow down demand, all you're doing is slowing down the process of supply catching up. So in in total, what I need to say to you and what we're seeing over and over again in the last 10 days, we've seen stuff from the Bank of Canada itself, from the International Monetary Fund. There were three articles in 24 Hours in Financial Times, which is the major international English speaking paper, three articles saying this is not the way to go. It is self-defeating. But the central banks are absolutely committed to getting back down to that 2%. And in the process of going from 4% to 2%, they could do more damage than do good.
0: Well, and we've already seen some of that, haven't we? I mean, you've talked about, you know, big purchases, for instance uh or big projects i mean you know the the government federal government provincial governments they've all i mean talked about we've got to build more houses that's that's part of the 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 drive here uh i talked to the people that are wanting to build the houses the developers and, and and home builders and they're saying i don't want to borrow money now it's it's too expensive to borrow money so that project i wanted to to start that 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 survey i wanted to build those 25 houses i'm not doing that right now well and that's all because of the interest rate hikes that the, they, these guys are incurring i mean that's impacting them cost of building materials we know has gone up too. i mean the collateral damage to the bank of canada policy here right now is 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 well devastating to some of these people i mean they can't do what they want to do
3: a hundred percent and that's why it's kind of incomprehensible why, why governments everywhere in the world that have a housing problem, and none is as accentuated as in Canada, because we have legitimately, for good reasons, opened the doors for new people, but we're also stopping building housing. And we've got more people that are dealing with higher interest rates by turning their rental units into short-term rental units uh, on the platforms that provide vacation opportunities. All of this is adding to more people coming in, so more demand for housing, and fewer people building new housing. We are building at a rate, something like a quarter of what we were building uh, in the 1970s. And we're bringing in many multiples of the people we were bringing in in the 1970s. So we need governments to act and they're just not acting because there's a, a whole faction, a political faction that says the problem with inflation is governments spend too much. But if governments don't spend in this area, we will spend too much. That's the simple math of the situation.
0: But and, and are they creating a new normal here? I mean, that's the thing I find frustrating. I'm, you know, I, I go way back. I don't want to go too back into far back into history here. But, you know, in the Harris government in the mid-1990s, all of a sudden, they just arbitrarily decided uh, to cut social service uh, pay- paychecks uh, to people. Uh, it created and, and really, you know, created the need for uh, food banks all over the place. I mean, they existed before that. But now, you know, without them, some of these people aren't putting food on the table. And that's become the new normal, sadly. Well, they're doing the same thing with housing now, aren't they, mean i mean if, if we're not building houses as you say that circle of life where people will rent initially and then they want to buy that's stopped and as a matter of fact people can't even afford to rent now because as you mentioned that market has become glutted and now we've got tent encampments and and municipalities as, as you and i've talked about in the past are now just saying okay where are we going to put them it, it, they know that they're going to be here for the foreseeable future yeah. it, i don't want that to be the new normal but that may be a consequence here
3: well, I, th- I mean, you know, what it always amounts to, Bill, is what do we expect of the people we elect to represent our interests? And the expectations are very low that governments will act for a variety of reasons. But we really, I mean, look, governments never lead the parade on yeah. how to fix problems. They follow the parade that other people. Uh, put into place and we need a parade of people saying we need more housing at the very least government should be backfilling the difference in interest rate costs for only affordable housing I'm not talking about single family dwellings they should be there's a whole bunch of things that the provincial government could do for example is like remove the land transfer tax for people that are downsizing so they're freeing up stock in the single family uh, dwellings the, the, the stock of places for sale is, has plummeted and so prices are going up. So there are things that governments can be doing to build affordable housing, to offset the costs of higher borrowing in affordable housing projects or to facilitate more stock coming on onto the market, so that there, there is some kind of reduction in, in price pressure. But we're doing none of it. And we're saying, you know, it's that it's that old, old theme, you know, I've tried nothing and nothing's working. <laughs> it's like yeah. I'm all out of ideas. <laughs> so there's plenty of ideas, but nobody is demanding that governments act. And that could well be just a, a case of numbers. Most of us don't move Right, it's the people that are looking for a place to live that is unaffordable. So newcomers, young people moving out of their families' homes, people whose uh, marriages break up—these are the people that are looking for places. Or you know, you're having a child, and the place that you live in is too small. But that's a minority of the housing market. So maybe there's just not enough people in enough of a position to demand better. But that's where you and I come in. Like we should be demanding better on their behalf.
0: Well, and you know, and be loud about it. You're absolutely right. I'm sure you saw the uh, the consumer expectation survey that was done actually for the Bank of Canada. Uh, the guys, you're causing a problem here. And and the, the 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 takeaway I got from that that report, I mean, was essentially most Canadians figure, you know what, I'm on my own. I'm not going to get any help from anybody here. These guys talk the talk, but they don't really do much for us. And we know there's probably going to be an economic downturn, if not a recession sometime in the fall. And it's, it's like, you know, you're trying to pump the brakes to stop that and that's, you can't, and it's, we're going to crash right into it. And what's going to happen to us then too? That you know, consumer confidence is probably at an all time low right now. And I think a lot of us are looking to the institutions like Parliament and and Queen's Park here in Ontario and saying, what are you guys going to do? And the answer, sadly, is nothing at this stage.
3: Yeah, well, indeed, Uh, you should know that actually consumer expectations are improving and people think that short term inflation is moving in the right direction, moving closer to what used to be. But I think what's really interesting is that everybody, when they do these consumer expectation surveys, I'm surprised at how on top of it people are that don't work at the central bank. They understand that the things that have come down the most is gas because they see it all the time. They see that the price of food hasn't come down uh, and and they, they do see that rents remain at really elevated levels. And that Brings some people to th- say, well, what has gone up must come down. So I'm always surprised at the proportion of the population that thinks that deflation is in the cards somewhere in the future. And that was at the highest during the pandemic, which again, shows how economically savvy the average consumer is. Is yeah, prices have gone up, but they'll come down again because you know we shut down production and we shut down the ports and we shut down this and that and the other thing, and things will kind of normalize again. And, and that's precisely what has happened. But now these interest rate costs uh, costs are really we haven't even begun to see the effect of that recession that you you say people are expecting. We think that's going to bite harder in this second half of the year. I hope we're all wrong, right? Uh, mm-hmm. like what we we've managed to skate over thin ice uh, by just having a, actually a very small share of people losing hours of work and actually more people working, not fewer people working. So, uh, so far so good, but I'm not sure we can continue to hike and not see a lot of economic pain, some of which is completely unnecessary. In fact, I'd say the majority of it at this stage is completely unnecessary.
0: Exactly. And the question everybody seems to be asking these days, hard landing or soft landing, I and mean, that's going to have to be a part of a future discussion because we're right out of time. Uh, always insightful, always a pleasure. I mean, thank you so much for the time today.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you today.
0: Take care. Armin Yonizian, uh, economist, of course, with the Atticons, the Fellow for the Future of Workers, and uh, and really, I think, paints that picture that I think we're all living and enduring right now, is, okay, you know, we, we were told constantly, we've got to bring that inflation number down. Well, it's going down. It was 8.1, and, and now it's, what, 3.3, something like that? That's the number that we're expecting to hear from. Why are things getting better for us? They They aren't, not yet. And I think that's causing a great deal of the frustration. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Focus on Washington, D.C. It's been a very eventful uh, eight or ten days in Washington uh, with some Supreme Court decisions uh, and also uh, some activity from uh, the special prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith, uh, to do with the uh, Donald Trump, which soon to be trial, I guess. He's already been indicted. Uh, the rumor now is that there could actually be more charges laid. Joining us to talk about uh, these issues is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, good morning. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Let's let's talk a little bit about Jack Smith first of all. The criticism, of course, after Merrick Garland had appointed uh, Smith as as the special prosecutor to look into Mar-a-Lago and a number of different things, when well, he was moving too slowly, uh, wasn't being very transparent, didn't know what was happening. Uh, he, Trump has now been indicted. We know that. Uh, and as you've been reporting, uh, Smith may not be finished with Trump and with some of his his underlings. Uh, there's a possibility of more charges now.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, this this is a summer that could prove problematic for. Uh, The former president in that, yes, this is an investigation that's ongoing and the special counsel is also looking into other matters linked to attempts to overturn the 2020 election and to have uh, a slate of fatal uh, fake electors put forward. These are all things that could kind of, um, you know, roll together as the summer progresses. But on the document um kind of case itself yes we already have that 37 count indictment that the former president pleaded not guilty to uh in Miami but the reporting now suggests that there could be dozens 30 possibly more than 40 Additional charges brought against the former president, linked to the handling of mis, uh, mishandle or rather the uh, the mishandling of classified documents, and and interestingly in this bill is that there was some audio that was released uh, in the last couple of weeks that purports to, to to have Donald Trump showing somebody something that appears to be um, a sensitive document linked to the Iran uh, or a potential attack on Iran, and what we understand here is that this document linked to Iran was not a part of the original indictment. So it does raise questions here. Is this an active uh, kind of investigation where the grand jury in Florida could come back and deal with additional indictments or could we see indictments come from another venue, possibly Bedminster? Uh, these are things that you know are, are weighing on the Trump uh, on the Trump legal team and the former president as the kind of days and weeks go by.
0: Well, let's talk about venue because I know you and I talked about that when the initial charges were laid. And, and you reported at that time, Reggie, that there was some concern about, about laying these charges and doing the indictment in Florida uh, because Florida, let's face it, is first of all very Republican friendly with DeSantis as, as governor. Uh, but specifically, uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, who is a Trump appointee as the uh, district judge there, who's well, shall we say, in the past, shown a propensity to to favor Trump in some of these situations. Uh, we're not sure how she's going to handle this trial or, or these charges, are we? I mean, she, there's, she's got a lot of of, of leverage here as a, as a, a district judge in this particular area, and uh, she's going to have a, I would think, a big impact on what's going to happen here.
4: Sure, and look, we we should point out that she has moved with expediency, like the court that she operates out of this kind of, you know, rocket docket in southern Florida. Um, you know, it has been moving along quickly and we were expected to see a trial start up in August. We know the special counsel has requested that be delayed uh until December. But again, there is still that variable of what this Trump appointed judge could potentially do to, you know, maybe curry favor with the person who ultimately nominated her for that position. So that does open the question here uh, if there is a different venue that's chosen, something like New Jersey. Uh, if the documents uh, at Bedminster have anything to do with this, um, you know, it, it's it's a more less Trump friendly area. Uh, does that you know open up an avenue or a possibility here that the special counsel could bring additional charges and have maybe a, a a judge that's not so kind of tied to or have all these complexities surrounding the nature of the appointment? That is a real possibility here, uh, and it means that Donald Trump could have this thirty seven count indictment and then have a second you know, set of indictments against him on top of other in- potential indictments that may come from Georgia. These are mounting legal problems that have stemmed from Donald Trump's own behavior uh, that now potentially may be catching up with him.
0: But at the time when, when they decided, when Smith decided on, on laying these charges, the indictment in Florida, uh, the speculation anyway uh, was that, well, they don't want to do it in New York because that's New York's considered to be democratic friendly and the Biden administration's driving the bus on this whole thing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, at the point now? Where they say I, I, we don't care
4: wh- what people think. We want this thing to work. Well, look, venue also um, was a bit of a difficult thread uh, needle for, for the special counsel to thread because there had been some cases that were working through the Supreme Court that ultimately were decided uh, in a different way, but that could have impacted how this case was brought forward because venue obviously is um, is a serious issue here. Uh, you know, if the special counsel had ultimately tried to take this and carry it uh, in in Washington D.C. You know, if there was an issue with uh, with the case, if there needed to be a potential here for uh, a mistrial or a retrial, wrong venue can potentially stop um, a prosecutor from restarting up. Uh, the investigation. So the initial conversation was, well, Jack Smith was being very careful here. Yes, National Archives and Donald Trump's time in office happened in the District of Columbia, but the vast majority of these mishandled documents took place in Florida. So the venue for Jack Smith became Florida because it was seen as um, as a bit of an easier road to walk down. Now, look, the Supreme Court changed things and venue is far less of an issue now. But uh, you're right. You know, Florida is Trump friendly. So there was some concern that this could go the other way. You know, if he goes to New Jersey, if 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 charges happen to be laid in New Jersey or an indictment comes down, you know, that that could work in the special counsel's um, favor. But ultimately, venue here was a careful decision, at least in the initial onset of this.
0: Uh Rudy Giuliani back in the news, of course, uh, last week as well with what they call a proffer session uh, with the prosecutors, uh, which we're told was voluntary, and, and he was uh, apparently giving out half a lot of information. But now uh, we're starting to hear that he may in fact be charged himself. What, what's the latest on that, Reggie?
4: Well look this is this is all part of um or at least this some of this has to do uh with Donald Trump's attempts to overturn uh, the 2020 election. We know federal prosecutors um conducted a, a roughly 8-hour interview uh with Ruth Rudy Giuliani who at the time was serving as Donald Trump's personal uh lawyer. This was reporting that first came out to, in the Wall Street Journal. Um but Giuliani was asked about a meeting that took place in the Oval Office back in 2020 that also had um, Sidney Powell, who was an advisor to the president, and this was all an attempt to try and deal with the fact that this was a group of of people surrounding the former president who were really trying to march forward here um, with accusations that that there was voting irregularities and that the election had been rigged and that they could get um, you know, alternate electors put in place to hand to then-Vice President Mike Pence to allow him to say, look, Donald Trump won the state, so therefore he can win the election. Obviously, all of this goes against what federal election law is. And at the crux of it, prosecutors are looking to Giuliani to find out, were these actions being undertaken by a group of people surrounding the former president or were these actions coming from the former president himself? And all of this, of course, um, carry significant weight because the, fe- the, the special counsel is conducting an investigation into attempts to overthrow the 2020 election along with uh, state prosecutors in Georgia. So, I mean, everything here kind of ties back into the behavior of Donald Trump. Uh, and he's now finding that there are people around him that are talking. Some of them are being given kind of a grain of immunity here, uh, but it means that the walls could be closing in around Donald Trump.
0: Uh, a couple of court decisions by the Supreme Court, which is not unusual, I guess, as they get toward the end of their, their calendar. Uh, they tend to rush a few things through, to, to I guess, to summer break, but very, very controversial. Uh, one of them, of course, was, was striking down the whole idea of affirmative action for uh, education facilities and, and institutions, uh, which got an awful lot of pushback. This is not unlike the Roe versus Wade decision from about a year ago, uh, where it really had torn apart a precedent that had been in place for quite some time, didn't it?
4: It did. Uh, and it actually ended up leading to uh, a bit of a, of a fiery encounter between um, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, who were both on opposite sides uh, of this kind of affirmative action ruling. Ultimately, what we hear from uh, from African-Americans, from the black community in the United States, is that overturning this um, part of affirmative action will have a detrimental impact on black Americans' abilities to um, you know, attend Uh, higher education schools now that race cannot be uh considered as one of the factors when it comes to uh acceptance now look we we should point out that there were um, other marginalized groups around the united states including asian americans who say that affirmative action was actually standing in their way of being accepted into these schools so there were some groups that were lauding this effort but ultimately what we saw here was again the supreme court a a 6-3 conservative tilted supreme court overturning decades of precedent And what it could be doing here is playing into politics. This could be something the Democrats kind of latch onto like they did after Roe uh, running towards 2024.
0: The other decision, of course, having to do with the uh, Biden student loan forgiveness plan, uh, which uh, in, in some of the reading I've been seeing, anyway, Reggie was pretty, uh, pretty much on shaky ground. Anyway, there was a lot of opposition to Biden's plan in the first place, wasn't there?
4: There was, and it's because there was there was concern here that the president may have overstepped his his authority when it came to. Um, approving money for something that ultimately would come from Congress, because at the end of the day, the House is what controls the purse strings uh, in the United States. And here was the president trying to essentially raise $400 billion worth uh, of federal student loans. And there was conservative pushback uh, almost from the outset. And then this, this Supreme Court again said, look, the president um, stepped across a line. He does not have the authority to do this. And in doing so, has kind of angered tens of millions of students who were really looking forward to this potential reprieve of $20,000 in federal debt before their uh, repayments from a kind of paused program under COVID start up later this year. Uh, you know, the White House is pushing back, Uh, They say that they have another plan that the secretary of education will be able to enact that will help to um, delete uh, some student loans, saying that it will be above the, the kind of legal line for them. But it will take time at the end of the day. Again, it's the Supreme Court going against what the kind of popular Opinion is of the United States, and this is why we're seeing approval ratings for or favorable numbers, at least for the Supreme Court, at some historic lows here in like the low 40s and high 30s when it comes to how people view uh, the Supreme Court and its, you know, kind of appearing to have a bias now from one side to the other.
0: Well, and it's I guess left the door open for for Biden to actually start to, to criticize the court itself. Uh, I mean, in the past presidents, I guess, have criticized some court decisions, but they've all seemed reticent to actually start to get personal about it. Uh, Biden's taken the gloves off with uh, with a, a number of the justices <laughs> now because of, well, Roe versus Wade, and then, then of course, these two decisions.
4: Yeah, the, I, and the, the, along with the decision uh, from the court that ultimately... Um, you know, allowed for for a woman in Colorado to discriminate against um, uh, LGBTQ couples who may want to seek a, a wedding design site from her, even though she's never created a wedding site before. This is why we heard the president last week turn around and answer off camera, uh, off microphone at least, that quote unquote, this is not a normal Supreme Court. And we've heard him make these attacks on this court after, you know, overturning or upending decades of precedent that have allowed Uh, you know, marginalized Americans for decades to be able to be seen or treated uh, as equal as other Americans. And and it is rare for the White House to push back so fervently against a co-equal branch of government even when they're pushing back against the House, they oftentimes still um, you know, have respect for the process. This is a president and a vice president who have repeatedly criticized the decision making coming from this uh, court. And, and some of that having to do with the fact that these were controversial, some of them controversial conservative appointments by Donald Trump. Uh, and this is a White House trying to tell the American public, look, we warned you this was going to happen. We need to ensure that this doesn't continue to happen.
0: Uh, but as you mentioned in your reporting, these are lifetime appointments, so this isn't going to change anytime soon. Uh, I don't anticipate that there's going to be any retirements. Is is there a political upside to Biden going after the court? Uh, you know, I'm just looking at the perfect uh, scenario here, Reggie, where Supreme Court justices, the individuals now, including Roberts, who some people thought had some modicum of of, of trying to keep an even keel here. Uh, but seems to have sided with that. Uh, it can can Biden score points with the public now by going after uh, the Clarence Thomases and, and
4: Gorsuch and others? Sure, he absolutely can. And look, there are some Democrats that are already saying we need to carry out impeachment processes now for some Supreme Court justices, notably uh, Clarence Thomas, who he himself has found himself kind of embroiled in uh, several financial scandals over the last several months. But look, in the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, Democrats pounced on that and they carried it with them through uh, the November election. And sure, they lost the House, but they did not lose by as big a margin uh, you know, as this red wave had been expected. So here we are now well well, more than a year out from the next election, plenty of time for uh, for Democrats and for the president to latch on to what they see are uh, as harmful um, decision or decisions from the Supreme Court affecting their core part of the base. Uh, and this will become Uh, a part of the messaging campaign running for the next year in that the Supreme Court and conservatives and Republicans are taking rights away from Americans. Whether or not it works, you know, we have to wait to see. Uh, You know, the president has his own problems when it comes to polling. But at the end of the day, uh, decisions from the Supreme Court that can impact a, a marginalized group across, you know, one party's base can result in grassroots action and loud voices and can create, you know, a snowflake into a snowball situation. And with a year to go or more, that could be a, a potential big uptick for this president as he tries to build on some sagging and lagging approval numbers.
0: Exactly. Well, uh, we'll wait for the other shoe to drop with the, uh, the legal cases and watch for your reporting, of course, on Global National. As always, Reggie, thanks so much. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Thank you.